This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It was George Kasuf's job to be nosy. He was essentially a detective based out of Washington, D.C., and he had a very specific niche. What I did, and it was pretty much a one-person operation, was investigate whoever would be nominated to the federal courts. Kasuf knew how to dig through a judge's professional past, excavating their true beliefs from long-forgotten rulings and speeches. A lot of it was just going to the library and also talking to lots of people. That's what I think I was really good at, is just letting people talk to me. That's at least what my boss always thought. Anybody will talk to you, George. He worked for a progressive advocacy group called the Alliance for Justice. And in the late 80s and early 90s, with Republicans controlling the White House, pretty much every judge he vetted was conservative. My job became simply to be the early warning signal to staffers on the Hill, specifically Senate Judiciary Committee staffers. Kasuf's work never stopped. There were dozens of new nominees every year, but there was one man he was really focused on. I sort of became the walking encyclopedia on Clarence Thomas. By the time Thomas got nominated to the Supreme Court in 1991, he'd been touted as a top contender for a couple of years. Kasuf had been on his trail that whole time, building the case that Thomas was a judicial extremist and a disaster for civil rights. He put everything he found into the world's most comprehensive Clarence Thomas dossier. I probably reviewed over a million pages of documents. And I would estimate that I talked to over a hundred people, either on the phone or face to face. Once, Kasuf got the chance to watch Thomas in action up close. A black leader had invited both men to come visit her. In that meeting, Thomas tried to sell himself as a civil rights champion. And I'm starting to write things down. You know, I'm thinking, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. This man would say anything to get ahead. In the run-up to Thomas's confirmation hearings, Kasuf gave his dossier to anyone who would take it. But it didn't mean my research was now closed. I just kept going, looking for anything else that people wanted to send me. In July 1991, Kasuf was at a meeting when he got a call from a friend. He said, I got some information last night. I was at a dinner party and someone was there who had a friend that worked with Clarence Thomas who said she had been sexually harassed by him when she worked for him in D.C. And now she teaches law in Oklahoma. I didn't have a name. I didn't have a time or anything like that. Before that phone call, Kasuf had never heard anything about Clarence Thomas and sexual harassment. This was something he needed to check out, and quickly. Thomas's confirmation hearings were less than two months away. If I didn't have Google, I had lots of phone books and directories. So I went to a directory I had of all law professors in the United States, looked at the various law schools of Oklahoma, found the name of some women, looked at each one's biography, and I found, oh, she was there at the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education at the same time. Oh, and she worked at the EEOC at the same time. And here's her office phone number, and that was it. 
Her name is Anita Hill. This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Joel Anderson. That tip about a law professor in Oklahoma was just the beginning of a nationwide spectacle. Anita Hill's accusations launched urgent and heated conversations about racism and sexual harassment. They also stoked an anger in Clarence Thomas that's never stopped raging. This today is a travesty. I think that it is disgusting. The Supreme Court is not worth it. No job is worth it. I have no personal vendetta against Clarence Thomas. But when I was asked by a representative of this committee to report my experience, I felt that I had to tell the truth. I could not keep silent. This is our season finale, episode four, A National Disgrace. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so now let me look a little bit from your life and history. You are somewhat of an enigma, which brings us to the question of what is the real Clarence Thomas like, or what will the real Clarence Thomas do on the Supreme Court if he is confirmed? Uh, I am the real Clarence Thomas, and I don't know that I would call myself an, an enigma. I'm just Clarence Thomas. When George Kasouf got a tip about Clarence Thomas and sexual harassment, he felt like he was racing against time. It took him only two hours to figure out Anita Hill's name and to pass it along to his boss. As soon as he did, she gave him very clear instructions. You are not talking to her. You're not calling her. You're giving this name to the Judiciary Committee. Kasuf did as he was told, and then he waited and waited and waited. We were getting a little worried because now we're into August, and I would periodically check in to see what was going on. Kasuf was still in the dark when Thomas's confirmation hearings got started on September 10th, 1991. Every day, he went to Capitol Hill to watch Thomas testify in person. It was sort of like watching your team slowly lose. Oh, you just struck out with that question. You let him slide right over this. As you're sitting there, are you wondering whether or not the Anita Hill allegations are going to come up? Oh, God, yes. Those allegations never did come up, and the hearings ended without much controversy or suspense. 
It looked like Clarence Thomas would be on the Supreme Court for life. But then, just two days before the senators were scheduled to cast their votes, everything changed. The shockwave reeling through Capitol Hill. Switchboards were frantic with calls from constituents with one opinion or another on Judge Thomas or Professor... Anita Hill. Anita Hill. Anita Hill. Anita Hill grew up on a farm in segregated Oklahoma. The youngest of 13 children, she was the valedictorian of her high school, graduated from college with honors, and got her law degree from Yale, Clarence Thomas's alma mater. When Hill went to work for Thomas in 1981, she thought he might become her mentor. But two years later, she ended up in the hospital with stress-related stomach pains. Not long after that, she left Washington, D.C. for good. For almost a decade, Hill tried to put that period of her life behind her. In 1991, she was living in her home state, working as a professor at the University of Oklahoma Law School. Then, her old boss got nominated to the Supreme Court. Most of the controversy over Clarence Thomas stems from his stormy eight-year tenure as head of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That summer, Hill wrestled with whether to come forward. What she didn't realize is that the Senate Judiciary Committee already had her name. When she did finally hear from them, it was extremely late in the game. By the time Hill gave the committee a typewritten statement, the hearings had been over for three days. But Hill's allegations revved everything back up again. The substance of the information was really startling. That's Mark Schwartz. In 1991, he was a lawyer for the Judiciary Committee. One of his jobs was investigating nominees. You know, raise your eyebrows like, wow, there's a lot more work ahead for us. The next step was figuring out what that work should be. Should we be investigating who's the best parties to do the investigation? Should we get the FBI back in to do it? The FBI did talk to Hill. They also interviewed Clarence Thomas, who denied everything. The public didn't know any of this, but Joe Biden did. The chairman of the Judiciary Committee weighed the evidence and couldn't decide what to do. For days, he dithered and did nothing. But the media was about to force his hand. A woman who served as personal assistant to Clarence Thomas for over two years has accused him of sexually harassing her. Anita Hill had given the Judiciary Committee her statement on the condition it wouldn't go to the press. NPR's Nina Totenberg got her hands on it anyway. Her story aired on Sunday morning, October 6th, two days before the full Senate was scheduled to vote on Clarence Thomas's nomination. According to Hill's affidavit, Thomas soon began asking her out socially and refused to accept her explanation that she did not think it appropriate to go out with her boss. The relationship, she said, became even more strained when Thomas, in work situations, began to discuss sex. When Totenberg asked Hill for an interview, she decided to go ahead. If her story was going to be told, the public might as well hear it from her. She says she will always remember her last conversation with Clarence Thomas at the EEOC. Well, he made a statement about his behavior that if I ever did disclose it, it would be enough to ruin his career. That first report introduced Anita Hill to America. It also made her a target. Her answering machine was full of death and rape threats. This was what she worried might happen if she came forward. But it was too late for her to stop now. Senator John Danforth knew that his protege Clarence Thomas had been accused of sexual harassment. But that late in the confirmation process, Danforth thought it was no big deal. He was wrong. And Thomas was frantic. He was sobbing. 
He said his life was ruined. He was just destroyed, just absolutely destroyed. He reached out during the time and said, man, this is, this is rough. That's Lester Johnson, an old friend of Thomas's from Savannah. I said, I know it's rough, man. I said, but God is the best planner. If, if it's meant to be, you're going to be on that bench. If it's not meant to be, you won't. As old black folks used to say, give it to God. Give it to God. I had the same phone number for many years. Uh, so he reached me at the law school where I was teaching. Thomas's ex-girlfriend, Lillian McEwen, says he called her in tears. He said, why is she doing this? I don't understand. Do you remember how the conversation ended? I just said, I don't know. In his autobiography, Thomas wrote that he felt betrayed by Hill, who he had hired at the Department of Education and brought with him to the EEOC. He also worried that the media would accept her version of events uncritically. Thomas quickly released a sworn affidavit in which he totally and unequivocally denied Hill's allegations. His conservative allies also went to work on his behalf. We got to win this what, by any means necessary, whatever we got to do. That's Thomas's longtime friend, Armstrong Williams. After Hill came forward, he told the Wall Street Journal, there's a thin line between her sanity and her insanity. It was not time to be weak. It was not time to feel sorry for yourself. We were at war. That war was fought on television. Aren't these crimes without evidence, so to speak? It's a he said, she said kind of situation. Well, but Faith, the woman's word is evidence. And I think what we have to do is give that more value, give that more weight. There was also a battle on the Senate floor. Democrat Barbara Mikulski, one of only two women in the chamber, called for a full investigation. What disturbs me as much as the allegations themselves is that the United States Senate appears not to take the charge of sexual harassment seriously. Thomas's leading advocate, John Danforth, fired back. It cannot be true that we are going to tolerate a situation where anybody who wants to throw the mud gets to throw the mud. And if it sticks, that's just wonderful. I mean, I was mad. I was really mad. Danforth believed that the Thomas he knew would never harass anyone. I wanted him to win, not just because I wanted to be on the Supreme Court, that seemed beside the point, but I wanted him to have some sense of vindication and restored pride. But it wasn't clear how to get him that vindication. An immediate vote without reopening the hearings might help Thomas because his confirmation it seemed like a shoe-in, or maybe it would hurt him since he wouldn't get a chance to rebut Anita Hill publicly. The Senate's leaders have been meeting all afternoon trying to decide how to proceed, but there's so much confusion here now because of all these counter charges and charges, no one can say for sure what's about to happen. The truth was, Thomas and his defenders weren't in control. In 1991, the Democrats had a big majority in the Senate, 57 seats to the Republicans' 43. That meant they had most of the power if the chairman of the Judiciary Committee wanted to use it. But Joe Biden had been slow to act ever since Anita Hill came forward. And now he was desperate to find some kind of compromise. In the beginning, voting against Judge Thomas was considered a very dangerous vote politically. Now it appears voting for him 
is dangerous. So the Senate, I think, is looking for a safe way out. Biden decided to reopen the hearings almost immediately on Friday, October 11th. Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill would both testify. And then, no matter what, the Senate would vote on Thomas's confirmation four days later. Those ground rules guaranteed that there would be no comprehensive investigation. The Democrats were really completely outmaneuvered by the Republicans. That's Jill Abramson, the co-author of Strange Justice. She says that wasn't the end of Biden's concessions. He also agreed to limit the scope of the hearings. The senators could only ask about sexual harassment, not anything else about Thomas's personal conduct. And while Thomas was protected and bubble-wrapped, there were no ground rules for Anita Hill. And there was one more thing. Thomas would testify first and last. He'd speak before Hill and have the last word. On the morning of October 11th, Clarence Thomas and his wife Jenny headed the John Danforth Senate office. In the hours before the hearing, Danforth led the couple and his wife Sally in prayer, and then he had another idea. So I said at the end, this might seem corny to you, but follow me. Danforth led them into the bathroom, where the acoustics were better. I had a tape machine and I had teed up a Mormon Tabernacle choir singing Onward Christian Soldiers. He was holding my hand, we're all four holding hands, and his eyes were closed. It was an effort to try to strengthen him. That wasn't the only effort to lift Thomas's spirits during the hearings. Busloads of conservative activists came to Washington to show their support. Jenny Thomas talked about that in a 2020 documentary. And we came out of Senator Danforth's office and we were going down the hallway and all these people were clapping and very excited. And he said to me, who are those people? And I said, I think they're angels. Good morning, Judge. If you have an opening statement, please proceed. Mr. Chairman, Senator Thurman, members of the committee, as excruciatingly difficult as the last two weeks have been, I welcome the opportunity to clear my name today. With Danforth and Jenny sitting behind him, Thomas denied doing any of the things that Anita Hill accused him of, and he said that his name, his integrity, and his character had all been harmed. There is nothing this committee, this body, or this country can do to give me my good name back. Confirm me if you want. Don't confirm me if you are so led. But let this process end. After less than an hour, Clarence Thomas was done. But the day was just getting started. Welcome, Professor Hill. At 11.30 a.m., Anita Hill took Clarence Thomas's place at the witness table. I instruct the officers, do not let anyone in or out of that door while Professor Hill is making her statement. Hill wore a bright blue linen suit and stared straight ahead into the flashing cameras. Professor, do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you, God? I do. Thank you. Professor Hill, please uh, make whatever statement you would wish to make to the committee. 
It is only after a great deal of agonizing consideration and sleepless nights that I am able to talk of these unpleasant matters to anyone but my close friends. Hill ran through her allegations from beginning to end, how Thomas had asked her to go out with him, how he'd pressured her even when she'd said no, how over and over again he'd called her into his office and steered their conversations to sex. He spoke about acts that he had seen in pornographic films involving such matters as women having sex with animals and films showing group sex or rape scenes. On other occasions, he referred to the size of his own penis as being larger than normal, and he also spoke on some occasions of the pleasures he had given to women with oral sex. Oh my God, oh my God. And here I'm thinking with every detail that she's offering, what the hell did I do? George Kasu's tip about Anita Hill had led indirectly to all of this. Kasu stood in the back of the hearing room, transfixed. The whole world was hearing about testimony dealing with a nominee to the Supreme Court and his genitals. As she talked, everyone was quiet. Hill said that Thomas would comment on what she was wearing and whether it made her more or less sexually attractive. She also described a peculiar incident involving Thomas and a soda can. He got up from the table at which we were working, went over to his desk to get the Coke, looked at the can and asked, who has put pubic hair on my Coke? Her testimony was so detailed that I found it, as a reporter, credible. Jill Abramson was also in the hearing room that day. I went to lunch with my Wall Street Journal colleague, and as we chatted, I mean, both of us were saying, like, how does Clarence Thomas survive? There's no way they can vote to confirm him after this. That was the mood. And if it took her testimony for them to finally realize that this man is unfit for, for judicial office, so be it. It wasn't just that Hill was laying out all those damning details. She also maintained her composure during hours of cross-examination. Her main interrogator on the Republican side was Pennsylvania's Arlen Specter. You took it to mean that Judge Thomas wanted to have sex with you, but... In fact, he never did ask you to have sex, correct? No, he did not ask me to have sex. He did continually pressure me to go out with him, continually. And he would not accept my explanation as one as being, uh, being valid. So that when you said you, you took it to mean we ought to have sex, that that was an inference yes. that you drew? Yes. A former prosecutor, Specter pushed Hill on the minor inconsistencies between her testimony and what she told the FBI. But it wasn't just the Republicans who were asking probing questions. Again, it's difficult, but for the record, what was the content of what he said? Joe Biden spent a good chunk of his allotted time asking Hill to spell out everything Thomas had done to her. And he used the name that he had been referred to in the pornographic material. Um, do you recall what it was? Yes, I do. Uh, the name that was referred to was Long Dong Silver. I'll be honest, as a 13-year-old kid watching the hearings, I thought that moment was hilarious. 
All of these very serious adults in a very serious looking room having an incredibly serious conversation about Long Dong Silver. In my defense, I was just a kid and I didn't know what sexual harassment meant or how serious it was, but I wasn't the only one laughing. Here's how Saturday Night Live kicked off that weekend. The committee calls its next witness. Sir, would you please state your name? Long Dong Silver. In the early 90s, Anita Hill was up against a culture that barely recognized workplace sexual misconduct. A big problem is the way some men and women view the same situation. In the case of Judge Thomas, that's something that happened 10 years ago, allegedly happened 10 years ago. I think to bring it up now is completely unfair and out of line. I don't think there is any man who can actually feel what a woman feels if she perceives herself as having been harassed. On the Senate Judiciary Committee, there was no difference in how men and women viewed things. That's because there were no women on the committee at all. And skepticism about sexual harassment crossed party lines. Dennis DeConcini, a Democrat from Arizona, said there was ample cause to question Hill's credibility. If you're sexually harassed, you ought to get mad about it, and you ought to do something about it, and you ought to complain. Instead of hanging around a long time, and then all of a sudden calling up anonymously and say, oh, I want to complain. Anita Hill's testimony was broadcast live on all three major networks, plus C-SPAN, CNN, and Court TV. But Clarence Thomas refused to look at any of it. After he read his statement on Capitol Hill, Thomas had gone home to suburban Virginia. That afternoon, he paced around the house while his wife, Jenny, tuned in and gave him updates. He had to respond uh, that day. In the early evening, John Danforth called Thomas back to his office. The doors were closed and the lights were turned down low so Thomas could relax and think. He was searching for just the right words, something that would convey his anger and unsettle his critics. He's on a couch and I'm in a chair and nobody else was in the room, just the two of us. At one point he said, you know what this is, Jack? It's a lynching. It's a high-tech lynching. And I said, if that's the way you feel, go up and say it. This wasn't necessarily a flash of inspiration. Thomas had used the same word in his opening statement that morning, saying, I will not provide the rope for my own lynching. For decades, Thomas had bristled at the assumption that he got where he was because he was black. But now, in a moment of great personal crisis, he was prepared to use race to his advantage. He wanted all those white senators to know that he'd been victimized and he wanted America to see them squirm when he said it. Committee will please come to order. Judge, it's a tough day and tough night for you, I know. Let me... It was after 7 p.m. when Thomas sat back down at the witness table. He started speaking before Joe Biden could even finish asking him a question. Do you have anything you'd like to say? Senator, I would like to start by saying unequivocally uncategorically that I deny each and every single allegation against me today. The way Thomas said it, Anita Hill seemed almost incidental. That night, he turned his anger toward the proceedings themselves. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks 
who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the US, US Senate rather than hung from a tree. With that, Thomas leaned back in his chair and tented his fingers below his chin. Biden didn't know what to say. We will have... Yeah. It did the trick. Jill Abramson. If anything is going to freeze them, it's basically being branded not only racist, but as people who would commit the most heinous crimes that have been committed in our nation's history. I remember wherever I was sort of stopping, just thinking about those words. Judiciary Committee lawyer Mark Schwartz was in a room just off the main chamber listening in. Just stopping and being pretty offended that verbal accusations were equated to, you know, these pernicious acts where people were slaughtered. I mean, when he's talking about a high tech tech lynching, um, he's talking about the work that you were doing, right? Like that you, that you're, you and your team. Look, I, you know, my role was a very small role. I think that we were just doing our best in an incredibly difficult situation to try to have a fair process. And obviously it wasn't the way anybody wanted it to have happen. But the, when you say it's a high tech lynching, it, it imparts an intent, a malicious intent. I vehemently disagree with that. That was not what was happening. However you felt about that phrase, Thomas had clearly changed the narrative. He'd shifted the focus away from his workplace behavior and onto his persecution. And the way he told it, that assault on his character was based on one woman's unproven claims. That was in keeping with the Thomas Camp's broader strategy, to isolate Anita Hill as a single, unreliable witness. But the truth was, she was not a lone accuser. In the days leading up to the hearing, Mark Schwartz and the Judiciary Committee had learned about three other women who could potentially testify. Thomas's opponents on the committee now had a lot more ammunition. The only question was, would they use it? We'll be back in a minute. Millions of Americans had watched Anita Hill describe what Clarence Thomas had done to her and how it made her feel. Some of them thought she was a liar. Others thought she was brave. Sukari Hartnett thought she could help. I really felt so sorry for Anita Hill and so proud of her. And I just knew that somebody needed to come to her aid to corroborate what she was saying because she was telling the truth. You heard from Hardnett in our previous episode. She worked for Thomas at the EEOC, starting two years after Hill's departure. What she said was exactly what he'd done when I was there. She wrote a brief statement about her experience working with Thomas. Dear Senators, 
I worked as a special assistant to Clarence Thomas at the EEOC from 1985 to 1986. Hardnett, who's an attorney, asked the dean of her law school to help her draft the document. If you were young, black, female, and reasonably attractive, you knew full well you were being inspected and auditioned as a female. Hardnett's statement got passed along to the Senate Judiciary Committee. I felt obligated to communicate this in writing in order to put this on the record publicly. Sincerely, Sakari Hardnett. She was careful to say that she didn't believe Thomas had harassed her. We thought that it would be better if that wasn't a part of the letter and that it would be better to just talk about my experiences to support what Anita Hill was saying. She was just one of the women who were willing to share their experiences working with Clarence Thomas. If the Senate Judiciary Committee asked them to testify, it seemed possible, maybe even likely, that his nomination would be sunk. I remember being in my office in the Senate office building. Mark Schwartz again. Someone came to me with a piece of paper with a woman's name on it, with a phone number, and the woman's name was Angela Wright. You also heard about Wright in our last episode. She was the public affairs director at the EEOC. She said that Thomas told her that the hair on her legs was sexy. He also showed up uninvited at her apartment. And then in 1985, he fired her. Six years later, Wright was working as an editor at the Charlotte Observer. Schwartz got her on the phone two days before Anita Hill was scheduled to testify. She wouldn't know who I was from a hole in the wall, so I introduced myself. I said, you know, who I worked for. I asked her if she had some time to answer some questions, and she said she did. Schwartz found that Wright was a lot scrappier than the poised and serene Anita Hill. She told him that Thomas was like an annoying fly, but she sounded like a credible witness. She was pretty specific about some of the comments that the nominee had made. So I, at the time, was remembering I better take really good notes because... This is going to be important. Schwartz asked Wright if she would be willing to come to Washington to testify. She said no. She was a working journalist and didn't want to put herself at the center of a news story. Schwartz thanked her and told her he would follow up. Then he rushed over to Joe Biden's office. He was very respectful, listened very carefully, but I don't think it was the kind of thing where he was like happy that I was there. Because usually people are showing up from my unit to brief him, it's like, We're only doing it because there's some swirl going on. The day after that meeting, federal marshals showed up at Wright's house. They came with a subpoena, compelling her to fly to Washington right away. Back in D.C., Schwartz was continuing to work the phones. There was a woman who I actually ended up uh, interviewing, um, Rose Jourdain was her name, who uh, provided some very strong corroboration Jordan had been Wright's confidant at the EEOC. Wright had told her about Thomas's behavior and even asked her to stick around the office until Thomas left in the evenings. I felt actually pretty bad about having to engage in a telephone interview with her because she was in a lot of pain. In October 1991, Jordan was bedridden in the hospital. I remember Rose was there with her daughter at the time, I think, in the hospital room, explaining the things that Angela Wright has told you are absolutely what she related to me about how the nominee had come by her house and how she was uncomfortable. And she was very emphatic and solid in her her statements. 
In spite of her condition, Jourdain said she'd be willing to testify. Schwartz reported back to the Judiciary Committee, which started thinking about how to transport her from the hospital to the hearing room. You know, a month before, we're talking about the writings of Thomas Sowell, and here we're talking about how to transport somebody in an ambulance to come and testify. It was crazy. NBC News has been told that the Judiciary Committee has informed Thomas's team that it is interviewing another potential witness. Two others were already scheduled. Angela Wright, Rose Jourdain, and Sakari Hartnett were now on deck. The minute one of them testified, Anita Hill would no longer be alone. On Saturday, October 12th, Clarence Thomas sat back down at the witness table. Here to come to order. Anita Hill spent the day in a Washington hotel room as the hearings carried on without her. Morning, Judge. And it didn't take long for them to go totally off the rails. Let me just read to you from page 70 of this particular version of The Exorcist. The Republicans of the Judiciary Committee were doing everything they possibly could to discredit Hill, accusing her of being a scorned former lover, or a lesbian, or a radical feminist, or, in the case of Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, accusing her of stealing material from the best-selling novel, The Exorcist. Dennings had remarked to him in passing, said Sharon, that there appeared to be, quote, an alien pubic hair floating around in my gym, unquote. I mean, where they thought there's a connection to The Exorcist, I don't know. Jill Abramson. The question seemed to be saying, well, clearly you plagiarized the allegation that Thomas asked her, who put pubic hair on my can of Coke? What do you think about that, Judge? Senator, I think this whole affair is sick. I think it's sick, too. I don't think I should be here today. I don't think that this inquisition should be going on. The inquisition kept on going, and it wasn't directed at Clarence Thomas. Her statements and actions in my presence were, in my opinion, yet another example of her ability to fabricate the idea that someone was interested in her when, in fact, no such interest existed. On Sunday, October 13th, the committee called a man named John Doggett to testify. Doggett was Clarence Thomas's Yale Law School classmate, and he'd met Anita Hill when they were both working in Washington, D.C. Now, Doggett told the Judiciary Committee that Hill had been obsessed with him. Miss Hill's fantasies about my sexual interest in her were an indication of the fact that she was having a problem with being rejected by men she was attracted to. Hill couldn't believe what she was hearing. She barely remembered John Doggett. Now, Republicans were using his unverified testimony to argue that Hill suffered from erotomania. That's a delusional disorder where someone thinks another person is in love with them. That was just garbage. There was really no credible evidence about this at all. This is something I remember, and this is so bizarre. Mark Schwartz says he had to chase down all kinds of leads, no matter how unhinged they were. One of the Republican senators had found somebody who had alleged that they were in a class taught by Professor Hill and that she would pass back their, their test books and that there was pubic hair in them. I mean, even thinking about it today, it's insane. Behind the scenes, Republican senators wielded this story as a threat. 
They said that if the Democrats talked about Thomas's history with pornography, they'd tell the world that Anita Hill sprinkled pubic hairs on a student's papers. I've got letters hanging out my pocket. I've got faxes saying, watch out for this woman. But nobody's got the guts to say that because it gets all tangled up in this sexual harassment crap. That was Senator Alan Simpson, a Republican from Wyoming. And that Saturday, he didn't just go after Anita Hill. Angela Wright will soon be with us, we think. But now we're told that Angela Wright has what we used to call in the legal trade, cold feet. Wright heard that remark while she was polishing her opening statement. She was at a Washington law office, dressed in a borrowed skirt with her hair pulled up in a bun. As she waited to get called to the hearing room, she listened as Simpson called her a totally discredited witness. Now, if Angela Wright doesn't show up to tell her tale of your horrors, what are we to determine about Angela Wright? The Bush White House also got a hold of her government work history and began circulating the fact that she'd been fired from a previous job. As the campaign against her gained steam, the Judiciary Committee met behind closed doors In that meeting, the committee made a very big decision, and on Sunday night, October 13th, Chairman Joe Biden announced it to the world. Ms. Wright and Ms. Jordan will not testify at the hearing. Their extensive interviews conducted by the majority and minority staff will be placed in the official record. In their book, Strange Justice, Jill Abramson and Jane Mayer reported that Senate Democrats became frightened of Wright's checkered employment record. The senators also talked about her tendency to lose her temper and whether her sexiness might make her less credible. It seems all the more unbelievable to me now than it did then that Joe Biden did not call her to testify. She was literally waiting in the wings. That was it. Angela Wright had come to Washington, D.C. for nothing, and there would be no ambulance to bring Rose Jourdain to Capitol Hill. And what about Sakari Hardinet, who said that Black women in Clarence Thomas's office were getting inspected and auditioned? She was ready to say those words publicly, but she never got the chance. When did you realize that you wouldn't be called to testify? When they didn't call me to testify. <laughs> like, what was that like, the waiting for a response that never came? Well, (laughs) it's a part of being Black in America, you know? It's a part of not just being Black in America, but being a Black female in America. So how do you feel about the fact that those women didn't get to tell their stories on camera in front of the committee? Like, do you think it might have changed things? The only thing I'm going to say about that is if they had testified, it would have changed the conversation we're having now. I'm not smart enough to know that it would have changed the result. The Clarence Thomas confirmation story is finally over. Today's vote followed one of the most bitter confirmation battles in recent history. On this vote, the yeas are 52 and the nays are 48. The nomination of Clarence Thomas of Georgia to be Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court is hereby confirmed. On October 15, 1991, the Senate confirmed Thomas by the smallest margin for a Supreme Court nominee in more than a century. 
He got the votes of 41 out of 43 Republicans and 11 of 57 Democrats. Clarence Thomas was soaking in a warm bath at home during the Senate roll call. When his wife Jenny told him the count had gone his way, he said, whoop-de-damn-do, where do I get my reputation back? Thomas may not have been in the mood to celebrate, but he had one, and his political allies learned an important lesson. The best defense is a good offense. Listen, I had a lot to pray about after the confirmation process was over. That's Thomas's friend Armstrong Williams. He's the one who told the press that there was a thin line between Anita Hill's sanity and her insanity. You know, I never believed Anita Hill, but Anita was a good person. I liked Anita. She was a friend. When in war, your job is to destroy the enemy who's trying to destroy you. And at that time, I just had to paint a picture of her as being unstable. Do I believe she's unstable? No. Do I believe this is something she really wanted to do? No. Um, did she do it? Yes. And so in doing that, other things were unleashed that had to be done in order to save my man. After everything she'd gone through in Washington, D.C., Anita Hill went back home to Oklahoma to watch the confirmation vote. When it was over, she told reporters that she was disappointed, but not surprised. That same day, she started getting a bulk delivery of letters, up to 3,500 pieces of mail in each shipment. Many were from women who'd lived through sexual harassment and didn't know who else to tell. And she has capped that famous blue outfit that she wore along with the thousands upon thousands of letters of support. I think that that has sustained her through the years. Her telling the truth of exactly what happened gave other women courage to come forward. We reached out to Anita Hill for an interview, but never heard back. In 1999, Hill became a professor at Brandeis University. 11 years later, she got a voicemail on her office phone line. It was from Jenny Thomas. I just wanted to reach across the airwaves and the years and ask you to consider something. I would love you to consider an apology sometime and some full explanation of why you did what you did with my husband. So give it some thought. I certainly pray about this and hope that one day you'll help us understand why you did what you did. We'll be right back. See them, see them three boys up there? Yeah. That's my son with the, with the um, blue shirt on. The blue shirt, okay. Mm -mm. This is Jamal, Clarence, and Kathy, that, his first wife. You you have a picture of Kathy in here? Yeah, that's Kathy right there. Okay. Do you have a picture? Yeah, Virginia in the, in the living room. Okay, okay. And you see this picture up here? When I stepped inside Leola Williams' home in Savannah, there was a photo I couldn't stop looking at. I mentioned it at the top of our first episode. It showed Miss Leola on October 15th, 1991, the day the U.S. Senate voted to send her son to the Supreme Court. She was in Pinpoint, Georgia, surrounded by family and friends. A reporter from NBC showed up, too. 
Ms. Williams, how's it feel to be the mother of Supreme Court justice? Feel good. <laughs> yeah. It feel good. Now, some people have said that your son isn't qualified. What do you think? You know, I'll tell you what my dad said one time. Sticks and stone may break my bone, but words will never harm me. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That's, that's it. <laughs> he, he talk about him, but that's all right. That's all right. They talk he's... about Jesus Christ. Yes. I, I read your son's book, and he said that you were very upset about how he was treated during the conference. Yes, I was, very. Um, we was at the White House. He was taking his first sworn in. And... Um, these tall men's coming to um was coming they real tall. And they say, Oh you Miss Leola? I said, Yeah. And he said, um, well, my name is Joe Biden. And the other one said, My name is Kennedy. I said, Oh. I said, is this a free country? And he uh, both of them said, Yeah. I said, well, I do not shake hypocrite's hands. Ooh. And walk right by my head. <laughs> and my son said, Mom, I can't take you no way. <laughs> did, did you ever forgive Joe Biden for that? Yeah, I had to forgive him. As a Christian, I had to. Yes, ma'am. I don't love him, but I forgive him. I never forget, no. Clarence Thomas never forgot either, and it doesn't seem like he's forgiven anyone, even all these years later. Reading his memoir, I was surprised by how often he talks about his enemies and critics, like he was some up-and-coming rap artist. The truth is, those enemies and critics are totally irrelevant. He's on the Supreme Court for life, and in his case, life means life. Thomas turned 75 this June, and he's currently the most senior justice on the court, if he stays for five more years, he'll have the longest tenure of any Supreme Court justice in history. When I first started covering the court 20 years ago, Clarence Thomas was an outlier. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the Supreme Court for Slate. But I think what's changed in the decades since he's been on the court is he went from being kind of the fringe of the fringe to being the decider in a whole bunch of ways. For a decade, Thomas didn't ask a single question during oral arguments, but his votes and his opinions speak for themselves. He voted to strip away much of the enforcement power of the Voting Rights Act. He sided with the majority in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overturned Roe v. Wade. In his concurrence in that case, he urged his colleagues to go much further and reconsider the Supreme Court's rulings on contraception and same-sex marriage. And now, Thomas is closer than ever to eliminating his lifelong nemesis, affirmative action. As we record this episode, that decision could be just days away. And again, to me, that is evidence that this is 100% Clarence Thomas's world. We all just get to live in it. He's become a revered figure, and not only in the conservative movement, because people are beginning to watch his ideas that he championed from the margins turn into the law of the land. Armstrong Williams again. That's where the court is moving in his direction now, and his fluence, even his control, is ascendant. And it is the Thomas Court. It's not just the Thomas Court. It's also Thomas's Republican Party. 
At least 10 of his former clerks have served in or worked on behalf of the Trump administration. That includes John Eastman, the attorney who came up with the plot to overturn the 2020 election. His wife, Jenny, now a lobbyist and activist, also got involved in that effort. I would like to thank a great woman named Ginny Thomas. Do you know Ginny Thomas? The wife of a great man, Justice Clarence Thomas, for her courage and strength. But Clarence Thomas has not recused himself from any case relating to the January 6th insurrection. In fact, he was the only justice to side with Donald Trump when he attempted to block the release of White House records about that day. Thomas has also accepted gifts worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and didn't disclose them. I'm just taken aback. You know, I, I think the young Clarence Thomas that I knew would think that this was not in keeping with ethical behavior. That's journalist Juan Williams. He's been covering Clarence Thomas for more than 40 years. I just think that's not good for Clarence Thomas. I think it's not good for the Supreme Court. I think it's not good for our democracy. And I'm surprised that he's put himself in that position. Uh, you know, to be frank, I'm disappointed that someone who is a hardworking, thoughtful man had that kind of ethical lapse. Thomas did work very hard to get where he is today, but he's also had a lot of help from John Danforth and George H.W. Bush and Harlan Crow, the Texas real estate magnate who's flown Thomas around the world on his private jet and paid for his grandnephew's private school tuition. I wanted to ask Thomas about all this, but he declined my interview request. So all I can tell you is what I saw. In Thomas's hometowns, Crow's fingerprints are everywhere. He donated money to rename one wing of a Savannah library in Thomas's honor. He also paid to convert an old cannery into the Pinpoint Heritage Museum. I'd like to thank my good friend in absentia, my friend Harlan Crow, uh, who, against my better advice, uh, insisted that he would preserve the heart of this community from the bulldozer's blade. Amen. Clarence Thomas loathes welfare. He thinks affirmative action is demeaning, but there's no denying that Thomas's white conservative friends have elevated him at every step. I don't think he ever realized that he was being manipulated and used by the white Republicans. I don't think he realizes it now. That's Thomas's ex-girlfriend, Lillian McEwen. He took their approval as friendship and appreciation for what he had done. And I think he still does. Dahlia Lithwick isn't so sure. You know, is Harlan Crow using Clarence Thomas or is Clarence Thomas using Harlan Crow? I think it's that their interests are perfectly aligned. So I don't know that who's using who is the most useful framing. I think the useful framing is Clarence Thomas had a vision of the Supreme Court as a political juggernaut for the far right, and he got it. In an earlier episode, I talked about Clarence Thomas and racial solidarity. A poll released the day the Senate confirmed him showed that 70% of Black Americans wanted him on the Supreme Court. After the hearings, I remember Black leaders doing their best to be optimistic. One of my professional idols, the late writer Ralph Wiley, wrote, I'm in the habit of forcing myself into hoping for Black people. Here's what I remember about what came next. 
In the 90s, my family subscribed to the Black-owned magazine Emerge. Twice, we got copies in the mail that had caricatures of Thomas on the cover. In one of them, he was wearing a handkerchief like Aunt Jemima's. The second one had this headline, Uncle Thomas, lawn jockey for the far right. Those cartoons ginned up outrage from some conservative black commentators, but among the black folks I knew, they were the consensus. So I've been holding back my thoughts and I did not want to talk much about Clarence Thomas. Eddie Jenkins was the only one of Thomas's college friends from Holy Cross who agreed to talk with us. That's likely because their friendship ended more than 30 years ago when Thomas took offense to something Jenkins said in an interview. And so I come to find out that after he got the, the uh, nomination, that uh, he didn't want me to come uh, to swearing in. Now, Jenkins watches his old friend from a distance. And all this time later, he's still waiting for that friend to return. When you know someone for a long time and you believe in trusting them, it's more than a history lesson. It's something that goes deep because you develop a certain affection and affinity for the brother that you know. And the reason why I decided to come on this program with you is because this brother ain't going nowhere. He is going to be on the bench until he catches his last breath. So there is hope that he realizes that, you know what? We all have the same God and there is a reckoning. And so there's still time. And that's why I'm here to tell you that there's still time. Wow. Hey, I kind of poured it all out, didn't I? Would you ever want to live in Pinpoint? I'd rather stay here. Leola Williams's father, Myers Anderson, built the modest home she now lives in way back in the 1950s. In 2014, Harlan Crow bought it. This street used to be bad. What do you mean? Drugs and stuff. Mm-hmm. But they don't do it anymore. And they, they tear down all those houses. And we don't have those people on the street anymore. If she enjoys the neighborhood now, it's at least in part because Crow helped fix it up. Her property was one of several that Crow's company bought on the same street. His company later sold those other lots, and they've since been replaced by upscale homes. I, I, I'm so glad I got to see the, the famous house, man, that he built with this. I mean, that's just unbelievable, by the I way. I wish you were clean, but I could, you know, I could do so much, but... Oh, this is, your house is, is great. It's, what are you talking about? I look in the living room right on this side. On my way out, I took a bunch of pictures and jotted down some details so I wouldn't forget. There was the lived-in den with a pair of old recliners, a tidy living room that no one seemed to spend much time in. The china cabinet in the corner, a large painting of Jesus carrying a fallen black man on a deserted beach. The home felt warm and it felt familiar. If you're around my age and grew up black in America, it would probably feel familiar to you too. This could have been my grandmother's house or your grandmother's. Okay. Okay. Yes, my boy. All right. Well, I mean, you know what, Miss Lella? I think I didn't held you for so long, and I'm so glad I got to see you and meet you. Glad to see you. You take care of that baby. 
Oh, I will. Miss Leola and I had gotten to talking about my baby boy. And before I left, she insisted on seeing a video. I'll show you this little video of him. Oh, look at that. Look at Listen. Ain't that cute? He's looking for his daddy. Yeah, he's looking for me. I'm not, he's not get back to that baby. He's not used to me being gone. Harlan Crow said he wants to preserve Miss Leola's house as a historic site. And it legitimately is one. It still looks as sturdy as it must have when Clarence and his brothers showed up on the doorstep as children with their possessions and a pair of grocery bags. You know, I can remember being herded into our little den. It's where the Motorola TV was. And we all had to watch what was going on in Little Rock and being horrified. You know, we'd watch what happened in Birmingham, the fire hoses, the dogs, things like that. And it really, oh, absolutely had a tremendous impact on all of us. Clarence Thomas's grandparents raised him to reject that racism and overcome it. They turned this house into a lunch pad that took him to places they could never imagine. It's a humble place, but something to be proud of, a family heirloom. And now it's owned by someone else. Slow Burn is produced by Sophie Summergrad, Sam Kim, Sophie Codner, and me, Joel Anderson. Josh Levine is the editorial director of Slow Burn. Derek John is our executive producer. This episode was edited by Josh Levine, Derek John, Sophie Summergrad, and Joel Meyer. Susan Matthews is Slate's executive editor. Merritt Jacob is our senior technical director. Our theme music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. Ivy Lee Simones did the cover art. We had production help from Benjamin Payne and Savannah, Patrick Fort, James Reddick, Vic Whitley-Berry, Alyssa Midcalf, and Jesus Vivar at Mixed Theory Studios. We couldn't make Slow Burn without support from our members, and I strongly encourage you to sign up for Slate Plus today. It's only $15 for your first three months. Head over to slate.com slash slowburn to join. Slate Plus members get ad-free listening on this show and all Slate shows, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and all kinds of perks, like a member-exclusive episode of Slow Burn each week. In this week's Plus episode, you'll hear a lot more from Dahlia Lithwick and Mark Joseph Stern, Slate's in-house experts covering the Supreme Court. They talk about how Thomas's path to the court continues to influence his rulings on the court. If you're looking for breaking news analysis of everything going on with the Supreme Court right now, you can also find Mark and Dahlia on Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. Amicus has new episodes every Saturday this month to tell you all about the big decisions being released this SCOTUS term. There'll be special episodes for Slate Plus members too. Special thanks to Janae Desmond-Harris, Emily John, Jessica Seidman, Paul Summergrad, Danielle Conley, Robert Wilson, Michael Fletcher, Rachel Strom, and Slate's Christina Cotarucci, Evan Chung, Kelly Jones, Katie Shepard, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Bill Carey, Seth Brown, Katie Rayford, Daisy Rosario, Hilary Fry, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. 
Appreciate y'all listening to our show.